Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 59, and that may be found in the Pew Bible on page 871. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud, uh, to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to take this word that we've just heard from the Gospel of Luke and to minister it to us as a word for us today. We ask that you would do that. Please come And help us by your Holy Spirit. Help me as I preach this word. Help these hearers to hear well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This past Wednesday was a significant one in the life of our county. I'm sure you know why. It was the first snowfall of the season, the first of many, I trust. And in a way, it came pretty late, didn't it? We were spoiled by a a long, warm autumn. Nevertheless, I wonder if you were ready for this first snowfall. Was the scraper in your car door? Did you have to use your credit card? (laughs) Were your snow boots easily accessible? Did you leave yourself with additional time that morning to get into work? You know, given how long and warm the fall seemed to be this year, even as recently as a few weeks ago, I was reflecting on how odd winter preparations might have looked at that time to someone who doesn't know what winter is like here or or has never experienced snow. You know, it's a crisp 60-degree day in early, October, early November, and you've got these big buckets of salt being put by doors with shovels at the entrances of businesses and churches like ours, long, flexible orange stakes being driven in the ground by driveways and sidewalks and parking lots. People are taking their vehicles to the shop to have perfectly good tires taken off <laughs> and have perfectly good tires put back on. So if you can step back and kind of look at it with foreign eyes, the preparation really does look a bit odd, doesn't it? Now, none of that happening on a sunny day in November surprises you because you know what all the readiness is for, even if it can't be seen. The readiness is for the soon coming snows of winter that are now here. Well, as we continue today in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that Jesus requires his followers to have a similar readiness a readiness that's only explainable by a future event, his second coming. In fact, he wants the whole of their lives to be shaped by an eagerness for that future coming. And as we'll see, he wants that same life readiness for you. So is your life marked by preparation for Jesus' coming? Or is it marked by preparation for something else? Something of your own choosing? Do you know what it looks like to be ready for his return. Well, let's, let's learn together to be ready from our Lord in the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you've been with us in this Luke series, you know that Jesus has been instructing his disciples on what it looks like to be his follower, what it looks like to be a Christian. And he's doing it while he's journeying on the road to Jerusalem. That's where opposition to Jesus will culminate in the plot to have him crucified. And opposition is growing as he's going on the way. Now, last week, he exhorted his followers not to be controlled by a desire for earthly treasure, by greed for stuff, but rather to seek the kingdom Jesus is bringing, all the while trusting that their heavenly Father knows what they need and will freely give it to them. Now he tells them, in our text today, what that concern for the kingdom, that concern for heavenly treasure will look like in the time between Jesus coming to establish his kingdom through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and his return to bring his kingdom to culmination. He's describing what he wants them doing between his comings. In other words, he says, I I want your treasure to be the kingdom. I want your heart seeking my purposes, and here's how that's going to look when I've gone up to heaven. It's going to look like you being ready for my return. That's what he says beginning in verse 35. 
He starts off by exhorting them to that readiness by telling them to be dressed for action. That's how the English Standard Version has it. More literally, this phrase carries the idea of gathering up the loose part of your cloak, tucking it in your belt so that you're freed to work and to move quickly. Put your work shoes on. Put your running shoes on. Be ready for my return. And keep your lamp burning. Keep the lights on. Once you turn out the lights, the only thing you're ready for is sleep, right? But what Jesus wants from his followers is readiness for the culmination of his kingdom. And he details that readiness by giving them three parables, three stories of readiness. So the first is in verses 36 to 38. The first is servants awaiting their master's return from a wedding feast. They're eager for their master to come back and receive him at his knock, whether he comes early in the evening or late in the middle of the night during the second or the third watch. That's a picture of how Jesus wants his people to be, single-minded in their focus on his return. And note the happy way that Jesus portrays himself as the master. When he comes, it's not to be waited on by his servants. They don't plan a reception for him when he comes. No, it says that he dresses himself for work. He dresses himself for service. He sits them down and he serves them. It's as though the master returning from the wedding feast brings the feast with him and he gives it freely to those who have been waiting for him this whole time. Blessed, happy are those servants indeed. Their watching and their waiting is richly repaid. And so it will be for Jesus' disciples, for his servants who eagerly await his return. The next picture of readiness, the next parable is in 39 to 40. It's that of a master of the house, someone responsible for a home who is ever ready for a thief to attempt to break in. And and Jesus makes the simple observation, right, that, that someone responsible for a house, you only get burglarized because you don't know when the thief is coming, right? That makes sense. If you know when the thief is coming, you can set up all those traps like Kevin does in Home Alone. But usually... Thieves don't let you know when they're arriving. They don't give you forewarning. So Jesus says, likewise, his coming as son of man to culminate his kingdom, to reward and to judge, it will be at an unknown hour. No man knows the day or the hour of Jesus' coming, he'll say in another gospel in Matthew 24. Now, just as an aside here, sometimes you'll run into someone who does think they know the day or the hour Of Jesus' return. I'm talking about so called Bible teachers who ignore Jesus' words here and elsewhere and think they've figured out when Jesus will return. Brothers and sisters, don't be led astray by that kind of teaching. It can have the appearance of spirituality, it can seem spiritual because you're really interested in finding out when Jesus is going to come back, but it contradicts Jesus' plain teaching here and elsewhere. And note that not only does Jesus say, you won't know when I'm coming, but it misplaces our energies. It it causes you to focus on timing. But Jesus doesn't want you focusing on timing. He wants you focused on preparedness. He wants you to focus on being devoted to him. He says, be devoted to me and it won't matter when I appear. You will be ready to receive me. Now, the third parable and the most detailed parable of readiness is introduced by Peter's question in verse 41. Peter's listening to Jesus, he's listening to this description of the servants and the master of the house, and he tries to ask a clarifying question. 
He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? That is, is what you're saying apply to all the crowds of people that have gathered around you here? Or does it particularly apply to us, to your disciples, and maybe especially to the inner ring of disciples, the apostles? We're your followers who really are doing the vast majority of servant-like things. So is it for us or, or is it for everybody? Who's the parable for? Now, I think Jesus does answer the question that Peter asks eventually, but not in a straightforward way. Jesus asks his own question, setting up this third parable, and it's that of a wise manager. Let's reread what Jesus says, beginning in verse 42 of chapter 12. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So Peter asks, who are these parables for? And Jesus says, well, it's for those who would be like the wise and faithful manager, taking care of things on behalf of the master of the house in his absence. The wise manager loves his neighbor, his fellow servant as himself by giving them his food at the right time according to the master's wishes. He's a faithful steward of the responsibilities that he's been given, of the knowledge he's given of what his master wants. And just like the watchful servants in 37 verses 37 to 38, the wise manager is described as blessed. He's happy. He's doing what the master said to do. And what's the result? He gets placed in charge of all the master's possessions. He inherits, as it were, the master's own wealth when he comes. Notice how similar that is to the servants who were found waiting for the master. They got to share in the feast. And here the wise manager, who faithfully takes care of his duties, he comes to share in the master's possessions. So don't miss the dynamics of what Jesus is saying here in the larger gospel of Luke. He said last week, don't Don't be controlled by greed, but seek first my kingdom. Lay up treasure in heaven. And now he says, if you make my kingdom the priority, you won't actually miss out. You'll get the banquet feast at the end. And you'll get the inheritance of Jesus himself. Christ will be yours forevermore. So don't be anxious. But now Jesus turns from these positive examples of readiness for his coming to a negative example. Still sticking with this parable of the manager. He gives examples of the manager who is not wise, who's not ready. Let's read again verses 45 to 48. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So first you have the manager who, as the master is delayed, uses his privileged position to abuse his fellow servants and indulge himself. He beats them, he raids the pantry, he's totally unprepared for the master's return. The master exacts a brutal punishment. He's cut in pieces and he's cast out of the house. He's put with the unfaithful, cast out of the household. Then Jesus describes a servant, a manager who knows what to do, 
He knew he was supposed to take care of his fellow servants, but he didn't do it. He didn't abuse his position, but he didn't do what he was supposed to do either. And he also is severely punished, severely beaten. And then the final servant, who also failed to carry out the wishes of the master, but didn't know what the will of the master was, notice that he still gets punished, but not as severely. And the reasoning behind these levels of punishment is given in verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the idea is the greater the knowledge of the master and what he required, the greater the responsibility. So also the greater the knowledge of Jesus and what he as Lord and master requires, the greater the responsibility to act in accordance with that knowledge. So to Peter's question, who is this parable for? Is it for the disciples? Yes, it's certainly for the disciples, and especially for the inner ring of disciples who had greater knowledge of Jesus and of what he required and what his kingdom should look like than them. They will have a huge responsibility to use their position as stewards for the good of their fellow servants in the future life of the church that unfolds in the book of Acts. But this parable also catches in its sights those who would have considered themselves to be stewards in God's kingdom, the Pharisees and the scribes. We've already seen how how Jesus has condemned them for using their positions of influence to burden their fellow Jews rather than to serve them. They were greedy and wicked, and they haven't made use of the incredible wealth of knowledge that they had as teachers of the law. Instead, they called Jesus an agent of Satan. So Jesus, who identifies himself as the master of God's house, God's kingdom, says there will be no mercy for people who have that level of knowledge and don't follow me. And this parable has application beyond the inner ring of disciples and Pharisees to the rest of the disciples and to the crowds, and finally to us. Anyone who has heard that Jesus' kingdom has come has heard that they should repent and believe in him to live as his disciple. They are responsible to act in accordance with that knowledge. So who is this parable for? Peter, well, it's for you, and it's for you. It's for anyone who wants to be blessed at Jesus' coming, who wants to enter into his joy, into his banquet, into his inheritance. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Heed Jesus' words. Believe in him. Obey him. Be ready for him, and you will have eternal joy. Ignore Jesus, fail to keep his words, and you will be eternally punished. Now, you, you might be wondering about these levels of punishment. What's that about? You need to be careful in interpreting here. Jesus is not saying that if you disobey him in ignorance, you'll only be punished a little bit, but you can still be his servant. The point is that the greater knowledge you have, you're more liable to greater accountability, potentially greater condemnation. It's very much like what Jesus says back in chapter 10, when his disciples are going out into different towns and cities. He says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for the cities that reject his sent out disciples. And the point is not for you to say, well, I guess I should want to be judged with Sodom and not judged with those people. No, you shouldn't want to be judged at all. You shouldn't want to be counted among those whom Jesus will judge You don't want to experience any of the judgment of the one who can cast body and soul into hell. 
The point is the more you know, the more you reject, the greater guilt. So too here. You aren't supposed to listen to the levels of punishment and think, how can I be the ignorant servant who only gets a light beating? No, all of those servants, all the disobedient servants are condemned. They represent condemnation. Even those who are ignorant of what the master wants are punished for disobeying him. Isn't that sobering? And anyway, you are not ignorant of what Jesus, the master, demands because you've heard it here this morning. No, you should not want to be among the less punished servants. Rather, you should want the blessing of being commended by Jesus, of being welcomed into his banquet and possessions. And that belongs to those who have remained dressed for action, who are ready, who earnestly long for Christ himself to come and are busy about the work he's given them in the meantime, caring for fellow servants, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, Jesus' parables of readiness, which started on a positive note, the master will come and reward his own, have now ended on a note of judgment. And so Jesus, still thinking about readiness for his coming, pivots now to talk explicitly about the judgment that he will execute at that time. Let's read again verses 49 to 50. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The first thing that Jesus clarifies is that part of his mission in coming to the earth is to bring this final judgment he was just referring to. That's what he means when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. The very judgment of God is Jesus to dispense. So don't be surprised, he says, when you hear me talking about punishing unfaithful disobedient servants. That's a fulfillment of my mission as God's anointed Messiah. And Jesus says he wishes that fire were already kindled, that that time of judgment had already come. He longs for the end of the age and the culmination of his kingdom. Why? He tells us why in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So before the judgment can come, Jesus is in a time of great distress and turmoil that culminates in his baptism. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? He's already been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's not talking about a literal baptism in water. That's not what is on his mind. This is a way of referring to his death. So in the Old Testament, water, you'll remember, is often an image of the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin. Think of the flood in the days of Noah. The whole earth was plunged under God's watery fury. Or think of the Exodus, when the armies of Egypt were flooded beneath the Red Sea as God judges them. So too for Jesus. He says, I know what's in front of me. The next phase of my mission is to be cast like Jonah into the heart of the sea of God's wrath, to experience in myself the wrath of God for the sins of my people. That's where this road leads that I'm walking on right now, to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the place of my baptism, and I long to be on the other side of that. I long to be in the phase where I've passed through the judgment, and now I'm ready to dispense judgment. And this explanation is why, by the way, earlier in chapter 9 of Luke, 
Jesus rebukes James and John for proposing to call down fire on the Samaritan village. You remember that? They go into the Samaritan village. The Samaritan village rejects Jesus. James and John are like, hey, let's call down fire. And Jesus rebukes them for that. It's not because it would be inappropriate for fire to fall on those who reject Jesus. It's actually entirely appropriate. But it's not time yet. First judgment on Jesus at the cross, then judgment on the world at his second coming. But having established that there is a future judgment, Jesus tells his disciples that that final judgment is already showing itself in the present. Look again at verse 51 to 53. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus says his coming does not bring immediate peace for all humanity, but rather it divides humanity. At the end of the age, Jesus will literally make a division between all the peoples of the earth, gathering his wheat into the barn and casting the chaff into fire. But already, he says, that final division is manifesting itself. As Jesus ministers, people are already showing by how they respond to him where they're presently headed on that judgment day. And Jesus says this division cuts through every strata of society down to the most indivisible societal unit, the family. He spells it out in painful detail, father against son, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Some people will join Jesus. Some people will be against Jesus. Now, I wonder if you're struggling with Jesus' statement that he didn't come to give peace. I mean, in just a few short weeks, won't we be singing Christmas carols that literally seem to say that over and over and over again? Has Jesus not read the carols? Has he not seen Charlie Brown Christmas? Well, of course, that famous Christmas announcement of peace on earth comes in the Gospel of Luke. That's where the angel announcement is. It's in Luke. There is a real peace that Jesus brings for those that receive him. He proclaims liberty for captives. He brings good news to the poor and healing to the sick. But some, hearing that offer, don't want to be counted as sick. They don't want to be seen as poor. They don't believe they are captive. So they reject the one bringing healing, good news, and liberty. And so there's division. And in fact, this division is woven into the Christmas story itself. Jesus says the same thing here that that old faithful Israelite Simeon said back in chapter 2 at the very beginning, when he first saw the baby Jesus and held him in his arms, he praises God for his salvation, and then he turns to Mary and he says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Jesus, Simeon said, and now Jesus himself says, is appointed for the fall and rising of many, the dividing of all peoples into those who oppose him and those who receive him like Simeon does. So Jesus does bring peace, and he brings peace for all the peoples, salvation fulfilled for all the people, all the earth, 
but not every person of the earth. There is a great division coming that even now is taking shape as Jesus walks among them. And he wants those crowds gathered around him to take note of that division and take note of his other signs and interpret it rightly. Look at verses 54 to 56 again. He said also to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus says, you guys know how to interpret the weather. The saying Jesus quotes here is is just like the saying I learned as a boy, right? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Here's a sign of good weather. Here's a sign of bad weather. This leads to that. You see it, you know probably what's going to happen. And Jesus calls out the crowd as hypocrites for failing to apply that same power of reasoning to the signs of his own coming. He's saying, I'm right here. I'm doing miracles. I'm casting out demons. That should lead you to see the kingdom of God is here, right? But instead, you use the powers of reasoning to come up with an alternative explanation. Oh, he must be in cahoots with the devil. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to be baptized, to die, and everywhere I go, I'm being opposed. That should be a sign to you that the end is near. Judgment is coming. So you should get with the times, and you should receive me, but you refuse to see me, and so you oppose me. Jesus rightly calls them hypocrites. You get the weather right, but you can't get me right? The reasoning capacities of their minds were totally functional. There's no intellectual inability on the part of the Pharisees or the crowds to see who Jesus is. It's a moral inability. It's spiritual blindness. They don't want to see who Jesus is. And so seeing, they do not see. Their minds are darkened. Jesus condemns their behavior and warns them again with another parable. This one from the legal realm. Look at verses 57 to 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus says it's it's obviously better to settle with your accuser out of court than to end up in the legal system and then in prison? Likewise, you ought to receive me now. You ought to honor me now, before the end of the age, before the judgment. You will be imprisoned in hell until you have paid the last penny. And because you've sinned against an infinitely glorious God and his infinitely glorious son, that will be an infinite debt. You will never escape. You will never get out. No, Jesus says, be ready for my return as judge. Settle with me now. Trust me now. Believe in me now. Hope in me. Receive me as your treasure. And he says the same thing this morning to anyone here who is presently not trusting in Christ. Settle with Jesus now. Trust 
him now. Bank your life on him now. The only difference between the unbelieving crowds then and you who are here today who haven't embraced Jesus is that the judgment is a lot closer now than it was then. The baptism has happened. He's died. He's risen. He's ascended. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The day is nearer now than it was then. Do you think you can live your life in some sort of middle ground of neutrality between those who accept Jesus and those who reject Jesus? No, no. Jesus says, I will divide all of humanity based on what they did with me. And what you need to do with me is accept me, trust me, receive me, set your heart upon me. Don't comfort yourself with a Jesus of your own devising, one you make up in your own mind, a Jesus meek and mild who would never condemn anyone or anything. That's simply not this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who says his mission it is to one day cast fire on the earth. No. If you persist in rejecting this Jesus, you will experience that fire. But today... As then, it's still the year of the Lord's favor. It's not the day of his vengeance yet. Jesus offers you to settle with him today. To be reconciled to God today. And we know his offer is good because he made it possible through what he calls here his baptism. Through his death. Even as Jesus offers this severe warning, he is walking the path to Jerusalem where he will be engulfed in the water of God's fury. All that distress Jesus willingly endured, the beating, the mocking, the scourging, the crucifixion, all of this was for sinners. He endures the terrors of the cross so that judgment can be avoided for those who come to him. And he offers that to you. He offers that to you right now to turn from your sin, to turn from your rejection of Jesus and bank your life on him. So that when he comes, it will be a day of joy and not of judgment. A day when you will be received with him, that you'll get the banquet, the marriage supper of the lamb and all of his possessions. So be ready for that day. Settle now with Jesus before that day comes. Now, what about those of you who are trusting in Jesus? This text also calls upon you to be ready for his coming, to be found still devoted to him, still doing his work on that happy day when Jesus comes to culminate his kingdom. So let me first ask you this. When you look at your life, what does it look like you're getting ready for? If someone were to lay out all the pieces of your life like a jigsaw puzzle, where you spend your money, the people that fill your life, the things you talk about, where your time goes, the things you get upset about, things you get excited about, your browsing history, your calendar priorities. If someone laid all of that, those puzzle pieces and tried to put it together, what would they say your life is being readied for? This really pushes us back into what we saw in the text last week, where we saw the foolish man building bigger barns, preparing himself for a life of ease. He was ready to put up his feet, but he was totally unprepared to meet God. Just like the foolish manager who spent all his time and energy pleasing himself and was totally unprepared for the return of his master. 
What's the shape of your life, fellow believer? Do your goals and aspirations, are they totally explainable from the perspective of your fellow Vermonters who have hope in this life only? Or is there an otherworldly focus that sticks out like shovels and big orange buckets of salt on a crisp, sunny day? Signs of preparation for the return of the one whom your soul loves. And whatever phase of life in which you find yourself, are there signs that your treasure is bound up with the soon returning Jesus? Older saints, does your life evidence a concern to be found ready for Christ at his return? Do you find yourself primarily preparing for a season of ease and much-deserved relaxation to finally put up your feet after decades of working hard and putting in your time? Or are you brainstorming ways to leverage your expertise, your experience, your years of developed relationships with friends and family for service to Jesus in your later years? Is readiness for retirement or readiness for the return of Christ more on your mind these days? Now, of course, it's right to think about how to provide yourself for yourself and for your family in retirement. I'm not saying financial planning is out of step with kingdom readiness, but it's financial readiness with the goal of being able to serve Jesus and his people as long as he gives you breath to be found boots on and hands on the plow until you see Christ at his return or he takes you to be with him in death. In that case, it's not ease and relaxation that are controlling the steering wheel. It's kingdom concern, devotion to Jesus and his people, and financial planning should serve that end. Readiness, readiness of being found doing the Savior's will right up to the end. Now apply that same idea to whatever your station is in life. Parents, are we more concerned about the readiness of our, of our children getting into college and how on earth we're going to pay for that college? than we are being found faithful at the last day and doing everything in our power that our kids be found faithful in that last day. Of course, we, we can't bring our kids to Christ. We can't save them. But we can communicate by word and by deed what is more important to be ready for. Being part of the best teams and ensembles, getting into the best college, getting the best job, marrying the best spouse, or knowing Jesus and being faithful to him until the end. Would the pieces of your life as a family, fellow parent, demonstrate preparation for that otherworldly hope tied to Jesus' coming? Or those of you in the working world, how does your relationship to your job reflect what you think your life is heading towards? Are you constantly readying yourself for the next goal, you know, trying to maneuver yourself for this next position so then you can move into that position so you can make this dollar amount and then you can get into this kind of house and go on this kind of vacation instead of viewing your work as a means of getting the financial resources with which to serve others, serving your own family but also your fellow servants in the kingdom, your brothers and sisters in the church, those with whom you will enter into the fullness of Jesus' kingdom when he comes. I don't know where the temptation lies for you. But I'm asking you to assess whether the preparation of your life is driven by the return of Jesus. Another way to say it is to ask this. Is is Jesus the controlling treasure of your life? Do you love his appearing? Do you long for it? Do you long for him? 
is the desire to see him and to be found faithful to him what's driving your life. Though you have not seen him, do you love him? Now that's a weighty question to consider because if our love has grown cold for Christ, then we won't be found ready when he comes. Your life may be busy and you may be anxious about many things, but you may have lost the one thing necessary, a devotion to Jesus, the Lord, the master, the judge. Now, if your heart is divided this morning, if it's distracted, as mine often is, then repent and look again at Jesus as he's portrayed even here in this text. He's given to us here in such a way as to rekindle in you an undivided love for him and a desire to see him come back. Jesus here is the master who, when he comes, he will serve us at the banqueting table. He puts on the apron. He picks up the towel. He says, sit, eat what I have prepared for you. He is generous. He is servant-hearted. He is the one who, when he comes, shares his authority and his inheritance with his people. He says, you've waited for me. You have spent your life longing for me. Here, have everything that is mine. Nothing is withheld. There's not a trace of stinginess in him. He is all generosity and kindness. And he walks the road of distress that leads to the baptism of death and wrath. For whom? For you, dear Christian. He passes through those deep, dark waters of God's fury for you. His soul is distressed and his body is broken for you, so that this kingdom of peace and feasting and treasure will be yours. Such is the Lord and Master upon whom you wait. Should not then your heart long for his appearing? Should you not look forward with joy to the glad hour when he will call us to himself? Let us have Christ as the treasure of our hearts and so be ready at his coming. Here's another way this text helps you, Christian, to be ready for that coming of Christ. Don't be surprised by or try to minimize the divisions that come from your allegiance to Jesus now. Let me say that again. Don't be surprised by or try to minimize the divisions that come from your allegiance to Jesus now. Jesus says it's not yet time for him to cast fire on the earth in judgment, but... Already, his presence is causing divisions. It's a sort of pre-judgment. Humanity is being divided into two camps in a way that foreshadows that final division that Jesus will bring. He'll separate wheat from tares, sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers. And already in Jesus' day, there were those who believed his word and those who said he was doing the work of the devil. And in our day, that same dividing line persists. And my question is, are you surprised that your own allegiance to Jesus causes divisions in your relationships, that it causes opposition. We ought not be. It's a sign of the times. We are on the path to when Jesus comes back. And when we, like Jesus, are clear on sin, on coming judgment, on God's wrath, on the exclusivity of Jesus alone for salvation, we should expect that it will cause division and opposition. You will not be able to avoid division while remaining openly identified with Christ. Sometimes I can get mixed up on this, and I think, 
Well, there is a way for me to be kind and gracious and to smile and and nuance things in such a way that my faith in Jesus won't be a source of division. I just won't be like, I won't be like other Christians. I won't be like the annoying Christians, right? I'll be, I'll be an unannoying Christian, and, and then it won't be a problem for people. But that's really wrong-headed. <laughs> you will never be kinder or gentler or more loving than Jesus himself. And they said he was in cahoots with the devil, and then they killed him. So if you are faithful to Jesus, this Jesus who says he's not bringing a universal peace yet, you too will be a source of division. Now that's not to say you should go around being cagey about your faith in Christ, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, you want to fight? Um, Not that. But we shouldn't be surprised by the division that will inevitably come from a clear, uncompromising faith in Jesus. And we shouldn't minimize those divisions either. I think we minimize the division Jesus brings when we pretend that someone who is rejecting Jesus isn't really on the path to judgment. We act as though people who have no interest in Jesus are really okay. And I think Jesus puts his finger precisely on the place where we're most likely to downplay that division in our families. Father against son, mother against daughter, he says, We so love our own children. We so love our parents. We love our siblings and our aunts and uncles and our grandparents. The thought of being separated from them is so grievous that we minimize that there actually is a real division between those who are for Jesus and those who aren't. So we end up saying things like, oh yeah, uncle so-and-so, is he a Christian? Well, he's never been interested when I bring up the gospel, so he's not perfect, but then who is? He's still good to his kids. He's always been kind to me. So, so who's to say? I like to think he knows God in his own way. Or, you know, my aunt, she's been very hostile to the organized church, but she's always been a very spiritual person, and I think that that counts for something. You so desperately want those who are close to you, whom you love to be safe from judgment, that you sort of make your own list of criteria, criteria for whom those whom God will accept You know, their kindness, their dutifulness, maybe their past religious affiliation or their past profession or their good intentions. Now, I get that impulse. I do. It's a heavy thing to come to grips with the division Jesus brings to those nearest to you. But we dare not declare peace where Jesus has not. We cannot minimize the real division he brings. And he says only those who can be assured that they will not be, the only ones who can be assured they will not face fiery judgment are the ones who have put their faith in him. Now, we don't know perfectly who those people are, but it will do no good to pretend your loved ones belong to Jesus when all signs indicate they have no faith in him. And it will weaken your resolve to do the very thing I think this text calls us to do, a final application of this text. We need to be ready by urging others to reconcile with God through Jesus today. The only proper way to deal with the divisions Jesus brings is to urge others to come to him in repentance and faith, not downplay those divisions as if they aren't there. Today is still the day of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor. So as you think about seeing friends and family, probably even this week, you've got a Thanksgiving gathering on this Thursday. 
Who is presently on the path to judgment? Who's presently divided from you that you can tell of Jesus? Maybe for the second time, third time, hundredth time, you can invite them to receive Jesus and cross that gap. Think about the upcoming Christmas season. Again, often a time when we see friends and family, those we are nearest to. Who can you tell of this glorious Lord and Master? Who can you invite to the ladies' Christmas breakfast or to the the men's night that's coming up or to one of the services at the Christmas time? Who can you urge to be reconciled to God, to settle with Jesus now before it's too late? This is our privilege as we long for Jesus to come, to urge those who presently are on the path to judgment to be saved. And so by God's grace, as we look for his coming as master and judge, let's continue in our devotion to him. Let's be about his work. Let's be ready for his day. Would you pray with me? So now, Father, we ask you to take this word and plant it deep within us. We ask that it would bear good fruit, that it would be, not be snatched away by the cares of the world or by the, the, the lies of the evil one, but that it would bear the fruit of persevering faith, persevering devotion to Christ, persevering labors to make Christ known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.